Have you ever been watching a movie and in the very middle of the movie, like you know exactly how it's going to end? You may have seen it like two or three times. Maybe even it's just so predictable that it's, that, that it's obvious it's gonna end a certain way. But in the very middle of the movie, you get really, really nervous because you're wondering if it will end the way you think it will. Like you get super like, like scared and maybe there's a little bit of anxiety that kind of crops up within you. Uh, you don't really know if it's gonna end the way that you hoped that it would, but then it ends exactly as it was promised. Growing up for me, there was a movie that was a hallmark in cinematic history for me. And it goes by the title, Homeward Bound. Has anyone seen Homeward Bound before? Amazing movie, just great movie. And if you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you, go home, watch it. You're gonna, you're gonna love every second. You're gonna cry, you're gonna laugh. It's awesome, okay? You're gonna, you're gonna really, really enjoy it. But if you haven't seen it, I'm gonna spoil it right now for you, uh, unfortunately. Uh, essentially, the movie is about these three animals, all owned by the same family, and the family decides to go on vacation. They're going to some place in California. And so uh, obviously the animals need to be watched. And so they, the family gives over the, the animals to a caretaker and head to California. Well, the animals uh, don't know what's going on. So they decide to go after their family members uh, in, in search of them to be able to reunite themselves with them. And so the whole movie is about these three animals it's Chance, the young energetic dog, Sassy, the brave cat, and, and Shadow, the old wise golden retriever, traversing the mountains of Montana and the valleys and the white water and, and all of this, these crazy adventures that they run into, the grizzly bears that are there, the cougars that are there, everything that you could encounter in the wilderness, they encounter in search of being able to get back to their family. And as the movie's ending, uh, the, the animals are, have made their way through thick and thin, and, and, and they eventually are getting to this place where they know they have a straightaway, like they're going to be able to make it. They know their family is on the other side, and, and they're quickly rushing their way forward, and their uh, Chance and, and Sassy are following Shadow as they go forward, and they're all excited. And then out of the middle of nowhere, Shadow falls into this pit that I don't even know how it was created, but he, he, fall, he goes, just dives right in and hits the bottom of the pit. And his broken, old, golden retriever body lays at the bottom of the pit, muddy and sad. As Sassy and Chance look on down below, and he says to them, go, go without me. Do what you need to do. The animals talk in the movie, so that's not me adding that in. But they, they said, go, find the masters. And so they go forward without him. They, they end up, they, they send themselves off in tears. If animals can cry, I'd imagine that they were in tears. And so they go forward and they go to find their family. And the family is standing outside of this home in California. Somehow they knew, I don't really know how they knew. I'm sure the movie explains it, but uh, somehow they know the animals are about to come home. So they're all waiting outside the home. They're ready for the animals to return. They're, they're, they're excited and they're anxious. And suddenly the, the, the movie pans to the hilltop as they're all waiting. 
And the first animal you see is Chance, young, energetic dog, and, and his owner is a little boy. He's, he's like screaming, Chance, Chance, Chance. And they, they come forward and they, they reunite and he, he hugs him and the family's cheering. They're all happy. They're so excited. It's awesome. And then, and then, then all of a sudden, the, the movie pans back onto the hilltop, and there's Sassy. Sassy's coming forward. She's running down. They all, the, the little girl that owns Sassy, do the same thing. They all, they all get excited. They all kind of come around her. They, they hug her, and they're, they're pumped. They're glad she's home. And then Peter, the owner of Shadow, stares at the, the hill rise, waiting, waiting. And the whole family kind of goes silent. Peter begins to lose hope. So he begins to turn back inside. His sister looks at him and says this very popular line, he was too old, it's too far. And they just begin to rest in the fact that they've lost shadow forever. But then the camera goes back on the hilltop and you see shadow, the old broken, muddy, limping golden retriever coming over the hilltop. Peter just turns from sadness to excitement, goes, receives him, and the whole family proclaims in excitement that Shadow was now home and they live in happily ever after. Now, <laughs> there's never a moment, amen. There's never a moment in that movie where you don't know that ending's going to come about, right? But you get nervous enough to believe that maybe that ending will not come about. Like maybe this was a special edition where the family keeps two animals and the other one died. Like that'd be a great family movie, right? Like maybe this was a, some sort of, um, maybe, maybe there's just something wrong with the one that I'm watching no, we never feel that. We know how the end is going to come about. We know the family is going to reunite. We know they're all going to come together. We know the ending. We've seen it. We've heard it. You could predict it. They're not going to let it turn for the worst. It's going to all come together. We have been promised that. And no matter how much anxiety we may have in the middle of it all, we know that it's going to happen. But inwardly, we can't get rid of that feeling of what if? Like, what if it doesn't turn out the way we thought? As Christians, we resonate with that. As Christians, we've been promised victory in the end. Like, we know there's an eternity where we are going to be able to, to be with Jesus forever, that we'll be in perfect harmony with him and other people, that there'll be no more death, no more bad things happening. We know that for all of eternity, we're going to receive that, and we can rest in it, but that doesn't change the difficulty of the here and now, right? There's a lot of bad things that happen right now that can make us wonder, what if this doesn't turn out the way it was promised? We live in a tension of having promises before us, but not receiving those promises yet and having to still walk through the bad things of life. Theologians call this idea, this tension, the already but the not yet. Daniel Dunlap, a, a theologian, said it this way, the already but not yet describes the tension between those benefits of redemption already experienced in this life and those benefits which await us at consummation. Christians enjoy the all-readiness of the atonement, remission of sins, adoption as children, the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
However, there is a sense in which we will not see these realities in totality until the last day. That's the end of time. And so they will always remain objects of faith, but not current realities. See, I know that with Christ, we reign victorious in the end, but sometimes I don't feel that way. I know that we'll have complete unity and complete harmony, but it's hard to cling to that when you're scrolling through Facebook and you see people fighting constantly day in and day out. I know that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's hard to believe that when we watch loved ones fight cancer, we experience a premature death that we believe shouldn't have happened. I know that one day we'll never experience feelings of depression, anxiety, and fear. But no matter what we do, it still captured us right now and it doesn't change what's happening to your present experience. I know that I am justified in the eyes of God I know that I'm eternally secured with him, but that doesn't change the fact that I can't shake these pet sins, these addictions, these behaviors, these feelings that put me in a pit of shame. I know that one day Christ will come back and reign victorious in perfect peace with the bride of Jesus Christ in hand, but it's hard to believe that when we feel as if the church is losing ground. I want you to be comforted God wins, but oftentimes it doesn't feel that way. This last part of Isaiah is going to comfort us as we wait in this tension of the already but not yet, encouraging us of future promises and how to live in the meantime. All up to this point, if you've been with us, Pastor Nate has been sharing um, very beautifully how Jesus is, um, is coming for the Hebrew people, and he's describing that there is a Messiah that is going to come, and he's going to suffer on behalf of his people. He's going to accomplish all these um, great works. And over the next two weeks, we're going to see how God shares the promise of the end after this Messiah and the final restoration of the world. And in chapter 61, the verses that we just read, he continues to describe to the Israelite people all that he will accomplish. All throughout this chapter, we hear from the perspective of both God and Jesus Christ. There's even a portion of which the people of God shout out in exaltation at the end. He's specifically speaking to the Israelite people and he's giving them a prophetic vision of what's going to happen. There are three things as we encounter this text that are important for us to note and for you maybe to to jot down as we look at this text and understand it in totality. And number one, he is going to continue to share about a coming Messiah who will essentially take the broken world and make it whole. You're gonna see Isaiah talking about a broken world and that one day it will be renewed and there's a reality where everything will come back together in perfect harmony. Number two, he's going to bring in strangers to that work. He even specifically refers to them as strangers and include them in the people of God. These are Gentiles, as we know it, simply people that were not of Jewish descent. They are the future church as we understand it. 
Number three, he's gonna refer to a time period in which there will be a blessing, an eternal joy, a double blessing. This is what we would understand as eternity or the new heaven or what's to come. This is the time period that we await as Christians. In the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61, verses one through three, we see that Jesus specifically begins talking about himself, setting up the rest of the chapter in this way. Look what it says in verse one. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our Lord's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. Here, Isaiah is describing Jesus and he's looking at both his earthly ministry and a time to come in which Jesus will reign in authority. We know this is true because Jesus uh, in Luke 4, verse 17 through 21, actually gets up in front of uh, the, the temple, all the people in the temple, and he reads verse 1. And he goes through all the things that he, the Messiah has come to do to proclaim good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to, to comfort those who mourn. Jesus gets done with verse one. He, he closes the scroll and then he sits down and he says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus says that time has come, but then he stops before verse two in which it says there is a day of vengeance coming, a day of judgment coming which means we have not yet seen that day of vengeance just yet. It is a coming reality. It will be here soon. But Jesus' earthly ministry and the day of vengeance are being talked about in this text together. So as we look at it in its context, as we understand this text in this form, uh, I think there's one thing that I would want us to understand from it. There's one thing that I would love for all of us to be able to get from this text as we walk away from this text it would be this, that as Christians, we live in the confidence of victory, not in the expectation of defeat. As Christians, as we engage with the already but not yet, we live in the confidence of victory, not in the expectation of defeat. This heart and mindset is easier said than done. In the here and now, we get lost in the busyness, the hardship, the temporary nature of everyday life. But still, we, we wrestle with this. We try to engage with this. How do we operate in the already but not yet? What do we do in the meantime? I think this text describes three different things that we can do as we operate in the already and not yet, as we operate in the meantime before things have been completely promised and fulfilled. The first thing would be this, that in the meantime, confidently know what you do. In the meantime, confidently know what you do. Look at verse four through five. It says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities. The devastation of many generations, strangers will feed and stand, or will stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. God, through Isaiah, is looking forward throughout time and knows that one day Jerusalem will be destroyed. And not only that, he's looking at the world and seeing it, how it was fractured at the very beginning of time. 
If you know the Genesis narrative, it says that the Lord created the world in perfection, placed man in it, and they rebelled. And from that, all of the universe was devastated and broken. God then uses humanity to be a part of the restoration process to to restore what has been fractured. This is the devastation that Isaiah is talking about in these texts. In the meantime, he uses both Jew and Gentile through the span of time to usher in his kingdom and make the world whole again. And that's why he says he's gonna rebuild the ruins. He's gonna restore the devastations. He's going to renew the ruined. Further, he's gonna give specific positions to these people. Once again, he refers to these people as strangers. These are Gentiles. This is the church. It's um, it's us here today. And he says that they will specifically be flock feeders and plowmen and vine dressers. Isaiah is painting a picture that the church, which is us today, have been given positions and gifts to bring about the redemption of the world. God has given each of us a position and place here on earth to use our talents to make an eternal impact for the kingdom. God has uniquely wired you and gifted you with something. God may have gifted you with the gift of hospitality. You innately know how to make others feel at home in your presence. Uh, Maybe in our new world today where we have to do small groups and engage with people on Zoom or FaceTime, maybe you know just innately how to make people feel comfortable. God has gifted you with that ability to use um, your gifts to build together the unity of the church. Maybe God has gifted you with encouragement. Your words have the ability to change someone's day from bad to good. And we need your words to be all over Facebook right now as people begin to share just so many different things that are hurtful and painful and difficult. And we need you to share your gift of encouragement to help restore what is broken in our virtual world. Maybe God has given you the gift of teaching. You have the ability to communicate difficult ideas and lay them out in an understandable way. Gift of discernment. You can immediately read situations and people without hesitation. You can pick up on different things and you're able to help people out um, by simply discerning a situation and God has gifted you in that. Maybe you have the gift of leadership. You know how to delegate and administrate while pe- people, and, and you help people go where they need to go and you, you're able to organize different things and you're able to use that to the glory of God to be able to do different things uh, and help restore the world around you. These gifts not only follow us in the church, but they they follow us to our place as parents, employees, bosses, students, and friends. Here's the problem. Instead of finding out our one gift, or maybe the two things that God has gifted us in, instead of taking that thing and sharpening it and making good, we believe we need to be everything for everyone so it burns us out and discourages us so we do nothing. Ultimately, we feel like we need to be the best. We want to be the person who is consistently encouraging our friends by calling them every day while leading a small group every week, while giving the best discerning input to our direct report at work, while opening up our home to host the most magnificent dinner party possible, while teaching our children how to be the greatest followers of Christ. We try to be absolutely everything and the best at all things, and our calendars are filled, our time is taken up, and we're burned out and done, and when we don't see the fruit come about in our labor, we feel like failures. We 
feel like we're not as good of a Christ follower. We feel like we haven't been able to match up to what God has called us to. And if you feel that way, if you feel worn out, done, you feel like your gift isn't being used, I say this as a friend. You're not a failure. You're not a bad Christ follower. God doesn't think less of you. You are you. God has uniquely gifted you and wired you for who you are. You have a position and a place. Breathe. Reassess. Look at where God has placed you. Allow the community of believers who have gifts different than you to help you forward in your relationship with the Lord, to help your family grow, to help your workplace be the best place possible. God has placed you where you are and gifted with what you have. There are those who are feeding the flock, those who are dressing the vines, and those who are plowing the field. What part do you play? You don't have to be everything. You just need to accomplish your thing. In the meantime, know what you do and know that it is enough. As you know what you do, we also should know who we serve. The second thing is that in the meantime, confidently know whose you are. In the meantime, confidently know whose you are. In verse six through seven, it says, but you will be called the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God, that you will eat the wealth of the nations and you will boast in their riches. In place of your shame, you will have double portion. In place of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. So they will possess double in their land and eternal joy will be theirs. Here Isaiah is pointing out something that has actually been realized in the New Testament as well. He's calling the people of God his priests. They have a standing as a people of God. And Peter actually affirms this in 1 Peter 2, 9. He says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. See, a priest is someone who would go into the temple and perform ceremonies on the people's behalf so that they could be right with God. Ultimately, Isaiah refers to a day that is coming, and Peter confirms that the day has already come where each believer will be given the standing of priest. In other words, God has given us the ability to commune with him on our own. We are all priests. Because of Jesus' work on our behalf, he has given us the ability to enter into the presence of God. And notice... Isaiah uses the possessive form here. He, calls, he says it's the Lord's priests and ministers of our gods. You are gods, possessed by him, adopted by him. He invited you in as a worker of his kingdom. It's an amazingly awesome thing. And we don't follow after a small God. We don't, we don't, follow a God that doesn't know what he's doing. We follow after the God who knows what everything was like before there was even a universe. The God who recollects what has happened with every second of earth's history since it's been formed. The God who is aware of the location of every bird that exists on this planet and has perfectly placed every atom in its unique spot. 
The God who has personally formed every single human being that has ever existed in the universe. The God who has set up every king, every official, every government, and tore down every power in history. The God who can tell you the moment that one hair on your head turns gray. And the God who can tell you every single brain synapse that has ever gone through your head. This God, this God who brought us in as his people and has given us his blessing stands victorious as our defender, our Lord, our father, and our king. He has made you his own. So then I wonder, why so often are we expecting defeat? This is the God that we're following if this is the one that's leading our charge, the one who is over all things, the one who controls absolutely everything, why so often are we expecting defeat to happen? You see this all over our world where Christians are getting really, really worried that certain things are gonna happen in our world, like as if the church is gonna completely be erased off the face of the planet. We aren't acting like one day we'll be possessing double in the land or having eternal joy or eating the wealth of the nations. We're acting like it's the fourth quarter of the football game. We're down two scores and we don't know who's going to win. I don't think God was jostled by anything that happened with the election. I don't think he's pacing back and forth, wondering what's gonna happen with the end of this uh, year or if the church will exist. 2020 and everything that it brought doesn't have God afraid. Didn't take him by surprise. Take heart. Have confidence. In the meantime, you are his, and he is the Lord over every aspect of your life. This is who we follow. In the meantime, know what you do. In the meantime, know whose you are. And as you know whose you are, Know who you are from that. The last thing that's said here in Isaiah, the third point, is that in the meantime, confidently know who you are. In the meantime, confidently know who you are. Here the people of God rejoice as they look to God's salvation that's placed upon them. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As a groom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the Lord produces its growth and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations." I used to think at the end of time, when I got to judgment day, God would schedule out appointment with me and um, we'd find uh, a room to, to kind of go over my life. And he'd walk into the room and there'd be a bunch of uh, video cassettes all over the place and um, they'd have names on them. And he'd walk up to, to mine and it was labeled with my name. He'd walk it over and he'd dust, dust it off and make sure that it was rewound and then uh, would put it into the VCR. And we'd watch every single highlight that he was able to capture of my life. All the moments that I was able to memorize the most Bible verses at Awana, all the missions trips that I was able to attend, all the sermons that I was able to do. We would go over all of those accomplishments. And at the end, he'd give me a final report of whether or not I was worthy enough to be able to be reluctantly forgiven because of my abilities. 
in the end, we all will face judgment day. This is a reality that we, each of us will face. But if you are wrapped in his salvation, if you are clothed in his righteousness, it will not be your life that is played before God. It will be Jesus's life that will be played before God. It will be everything that he accomplished. He will see every moment that Christ turned down temptation where we decided to give in. It'll be every moment where Jesus stood up for the broken where we walked by. It'll be every moment where he humbled himself, but we have puffed ourselves up with pride. It'll be every mocking, every beating, every flogging, every nail, every tear, every last breath that we were supposed to face, he took on our behalf. See, Jesus lived the perfect life. He died a sinner's death, the one that we deserved and was raised from the grave so that we could be wrapped in robes of righteousness, clothed in gar garments of salvation, like a bride on her wedding day. We've been given new life, not because you're awesome, not because you're worthy, not because you did enough, not because you read your Bible enough or prayed enough, but simply because he gave it to you. He substituted his life for yours so that you could experience brand new life. In other words, your new identity has been received. Who you are has been received, not achieved. This massively changes how we operate in the already but not yet. If we understand this as who we are as Christians, this massively ch changes everything. See, your occupation and your performance don't change your tier level in the eyes of God. Your failure and success as a parent doesn't sway his opinion of you. Your habits, your addictions, and behaviors from the past or the present don't define you. The thoughts and opinions of others hold no weight over your eternal security. And Paul affirms this in a beautiful text in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. He says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The only thing that matters is that you have been clothed, wrapped, and raised to new life with Jesus. I want to say this as a loving caution. If you are an unbeliever, like you would come into this room and not affirm that you are a Christian. Uh, this reality, this identity is not yours. One day the tape will be played. Your life will be uh, placed before God on, on judgment day. And your greatest highlights, your greatest abilities will not be enough. Only perfection in Jesus' life will be enough. However, the beautiful thing is that it's not too late. God's grace is available for you. He is here to wrap you in robes of salvation. All you must do is believe Place him as Lord and Savior of your life. Walk away from the things that have brought you down and walk forward in this new identity, not allowing the past sins and failures to define who you are, but allowing his love to be able to do so. And if you want to be able to do that this morning, 
If today is the day that you feel like you wanna walk forward in new identity, turn to the person next to you, find someone in this room, ask them about this faith. And if they don't know, have them find someone else. We want you to be able to experience this new identity. Christian, if you're in this room for so long, you've been trying to place forward your best abilities, your greatest attempts, all the things that you feel like you should be able to place before God so that he can love you. You've been caught up in the, the thought that your actions and performances and abilities were enough. And you come in this morning to this service and it's left you dry. It's left you worn out. I mean, you're ready to give up, to step out. You're wearing a mask that you feel like you can't keep up or keep on. This gospel this identity is for you as well. You don't have to keep it up anymore. He's paid the price. Don't get caught in the trap. It makes you believe that you have to try to keep your salvation on your own. You have received this. This is for you as well. Would you repent? Would you re-believe in this gospel? Would you walk forward in what God has given you? As we wrestle through this world, we are not defined by what we do or what we can accomplish, but by the shed blood on the cross that gives us new standing. In the meantime, know who you are in the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ. Live in the confidence of victory, not in the expectation of defeat. And in the meantime, know what you do, know whose you are, and know who you are. So what, what do we do this week from this text? How does Isaiah 61 inform the way that we live this Wednesday? The way that we interact with our family members and our coworkers? Uh, in verses eight through nine, there's something interesting that's pointed out here. It says that, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and injustice. I will faithfully reward my people and make a permanent covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their posterity among the peoples. All who see will recognize that they are a people that the Lord has blessed. When we know what we are to do, when we know who we are owned by, when we know who we are, people will know there will be a marked difference because you will encounter the current events of this world with grace, not fear. Question, do people know? Christian, do people see a difference in your life? Do they recognize something different about you? Do they see a hope that's placed in a future kingdom that knows who their Lord and Savior is? Are you living confident in the fact that there is victory promised to us? Are you living expecting defeat? Do you live as if the ending of this movie has changed? Live confident in the victory, not in the expectation of defeat. There's one day where we will see this victory realized. There's one day where we will see this for our, for our very eyes. In Revelation chapter 21, John gives us insight into this day. And I just wanna read this over you. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne 
Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. The previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And he also said, write, because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. I don't know about you. I'm ready for that day. I'm ready for the day where Christ comes back and we're able to live in eternity in perfection with him. I'm ready for the day where there's no more cancer. I'm ready for the day where there's no more death. I'm ready for the day where I'll physically be able to see my savior kneel down to me and wipe away the tears from my eyes. I'm ready for no more heartbreak, addictions, and failures. Has life got you down? Do you feel beaten and broken? Do you feel like the battle is lost? Take heart. God wins in the end. Live in the expectation of victory, not, not in the expectation of defeat. Let me pray for us. God, you give us insight to what eternity will be like and being able to be with you forever. God, I, I pray that we are able to read this text with confidence in what you will accomplish and what you have accomplished. Help us to place our hope in the coming victory. Help us to place who we are in you. And if there are people in this room or watching online that they don't believe in you, or maybe they're struggling and they're wrestling with this. Lord, may this be the day where they finally find their new identity in you, that they find you and, and you wrap them in your garments of salvation and clothes of righteousness. There are Christians in this room that have been attempting to try to find their worth in things that they can do. May today be the day where they find out and remember that they don't have to accomplish anything else. It is finished. And they are loved by you regardless of what they do. Help us today and help us this week. May people see a difference in us. In your name we pray, amen.